Well, good morning. A couple things here before we get going. Um, the safety team is in need of some more volunteers. So if you're interested in all helping in that ministry, if you could see Jason Kelly or Matthew Paulding, that would be uh, helpful. We could uh, use some help there. And then uh, in your bulletin, I think there's a little flyer for the summer mission trip coming up to Japan. So we need to uh, have you consider that. So the Lord have you be a part of that. Uh, you can look at that material and see Matthew Summers. And then an announcement for our entire church family. Uh, the Jim and Barbara Marmion are going to retire at the end of the month. Um, they've been here for 10 years, faithfully serving the fellowship. They've had a desire to uh, go back to Texas for a long time. And so they're working towards that end. So somewhere at the end of the month, we'll have a celebration and thank them uh, properly. But I'm just letting you know that. All right, take your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4. God's Word says this, Having become as much better than angels, uh, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And we, he, when he again brings uh, the firstborn to the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds or spirits? And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, therefore God, thy God hath anointed thee with oil, the oil of gladness above thy companions. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hand, and they will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become old as a garment. And as a mantle, thou wilt roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years, thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you this morning and turn our attention here again to the book of Hebrews. And we pray, Lord, that you'd guide us and um, help us to listen carefully uh, to your truth. To listen carefully to your word, uh, again, with ears of understanding, uh, as we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the superior one, superior to all, our only help, our only hope. Help us to uh, believe those realities in our lives, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, we have the opportunity to come here to the, the book of Hebrews. We're studying, and I think this is our fourth time in our new study here in the book of Hebrews. And the book, as I told you, is written primarily to a group of uh, Jewish individuals. Most of them have converted and repented. They've come to faith in Christ. They've left Judaism. Um, some of them in the group are non-believers, Jewish unbelievers, but they're also addressed in various portions in this letter. Now, the genuine believers are struggling. They're, they're facing difficulties of persecution because they've actually believed that 
although the Jewish religious authorities have blasphemed the person of Jesus, and then Jesus has suffered uh, humiliating execution as a criminal via a Roman crucifixion, which was the, seen as the most despicable of all deaths, these uh, Jewish individuals in this congregation actually believe that Jesus was the Christ. Right? They believed that he was the Christ. They believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. They had come to faith in him uh, in large part because he actually defeated death. He came out of the tomb on the third day. And as I told you last time, that either Jesus Christ either came out of the tomb or he didn't. It's not a matter of your opinion, my opinion, your feelings, my opinion. He either historically came out of the tomb or he did not. And if he did not, uh, then we're all wasting our time here. If he did, and I can assure you, not based on my own feelings or experience, but I can assure you based on the testimony of the word of God that actually Jesus Christ came out of that tomb on the third day, he actually defeated death, then that changes everything. That changes everything. That changes the way we look at life. Changes the way we live our life. Changes the way we look at death. Changes the way we spend our time and our money, our resources, and how we evaluate everything around us. And while we believe that Jesus came out of that tomb, we must believe that Jesus came out of that tomb. Right? Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Right? We need to encourage each other. That truth is reality. That truth, the great hope that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of our union with the person of Jesus Christ, because he defeated death, what? We also will defeat death. Death is not the final enemy. The final enemy has been defeated, right? Now, we realize that the world around us, the fallen world, the unbelieving world, doesn't believe any of that whatsoever. Uh, They think it's foolishness. They hate that message. The fallen world around us, the unbelieving world, hates the message of a resurrected Christ because if it is true, and it is, that means that they too are accountable to God, and they want to believe that they are not accountable to God, but the reality is they are accountable to God. So what the unbeliever does is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They fight against the the truth because they hate God, they hate Christ, and they hate all those who follow Christ. So that's the hostility that the Jewish Christians are receiving uh, here in the context of this book, this hostility. Uh, They're coming to a realization on a personal level that there is indeed a really real, a very real price to pay to follow the person of Jesus Christ. They have been cast out of their families. They've been thrown out of the synagogue, which is basically the center of their their community. Uh, Their friends have abandoned them. They're facing increased pressure from society, increasing pressure from the government all around them. Some of them may very soon be facing the uh, very real uh, reality of coming martyrdom. So they're being pressured. They're being tempted to turn away from Christ. But the writer is encouraging them and therefore encouraging us also when we face real difficulties and real trials, real troubles in life, he is encouraging them to fix their eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of problems, the encouragement from the writer is to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, not on your issue, not on your struggle, not on your problem, not on the pressure, not on the government, not on the things that are going on in the culture. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ because he is where your hope comes from. He is where your help comes from. And again, we do that and can only do that properly when we have a right understanding of who Jesus Christ is. 
And, and as I said last time and a number of times, what each and every one of us needs is a greater vision, a greater biblical vision, a biblical understanding of the person who, of who Jesus Christ is. And that's what the author of this book is doing. He's encouraging them, encouraging us, whoever takes up the book to read, to understand, and then encouraging us to encourage each other to understand who Jesus Christ is and to firmly keep our eyes fixed on him. This one who's loved us from eternity, this one who's loved us in time, this one who has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us and that nothing will ever be able to separate us from his love, either in time or in the eternal future. Fix your eyes on him. Now, when you come to the, the opening of, the, of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses are really one sentence. We only made it through three uh, last time. We're going to work our way through four, Lord willing, this time. And, and uh, again, the, the, reader, the, the writer opens the book and points the reader's attention to the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ, right? Because if we understand who he is in his supremacy, in his person, in his work, if we understand that he is indeed God's son, our savior, then instead of doubting, instead of trembling in fear from the circumstances and situations, again, on a personal level, or just those in the culture and around the world, uh, all around us, instead of doubting or fear and trembling, we'll respond in confident faith in the midst of whatever difficulty we're going through, in the midst of whatever trials, if we have our eyes fixed on him. Now, I told you the first thing that the author does is he reveals the fact that God speaks, that God speaks. He wants to be heard. He wants people to know him. There's not some kind of mystical thing you've got to do and get a secret decoder watch and pay some money. No, God freely wants to be known, and all people have to do is just pick up the book and read. So he's telling the recipients of the letter the superiority of Christ, the superior one, the one who is the superior form of all God revelation, God-given revelation. He's superior to all the prophets of the Old Testament. He's, he's superior to all former Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Jesus Christ is the end of prophecy. He's the one whom the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to. He is, Jesus Christ, the superior form of revelation. He is the preeminent form of revelation. Again, superior to all. And now this morning, we're going to turn our attention to the, the issue of angels, and we're going to find the author is telling us that he's superior to the angels. Now, we've got a lot to get through. There's no way possible I can get through uh, just even a little part of what I just read at the top of the chapter. But let me kind of bring us back up to speed here and just do a very, very quick review. Uh, again, you'll remember in, the, in verses uh, 2 through 3 here at the top of the chapter, the writer is going to give seven statements of Christ's supremacy. And actually what he does, if you note carefully, he's laying them out along three lines of the Christ, three offices of the Christ. Uh, he's going to show us that Jesus is the perfect prophet, uh, the perfect priest, and then the king, the high king of Israel. And as the prophet of God, he is the one who perfectly reveals God to us. As God's priest, Jesus Christ is the one who offers himself for our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And as our king, uh, he, he's the one who reigns and rules from heaven uh, above all, uh, over all. He's the sovereign. Uh, again, as Bruce said, go to sleep at night. Jesus Christ is in charge of everything. He has it all under control. You need to turn your eyes to Jesus Christ and focus on him. 
Now, the writer is going to do the same thing here just in a moment in verses 5 through 14. He's going to lay out some more evidence, and now it's going to be seven Old Testament citations ascribed to the person of Christ that again point towards his supremacy. So seven, uh, seven statements of Christ's supremacy, seven Old Testament citations. That's because the number of seven was seen by the Jewish people in the Jewish world as a, as a number of completion or perfection. So, so the writer's going to give a sevenfold description, again, pointing to the perfection of Jesus Christ. Now, again, we went through the first three verses last time, but let me just move quickly through this uh, review. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke, again, he speaks. He wants to be listened to. He wants to be heard. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Again, men will never discover God on their own initiative. It's God who has to reveal himself to people. And again, he's done that. He's done that in his word. And he's done that through his supreme greatest revelation, that being the person of Jesus Christ, God's final word, word, uh, God's complete revelation to mankind. Again, superior to the Old Testament prophets, a better form of revelation. Because Jesus Christ not only reveals everything we need to know about God, Jesus Christ gives us a picture of God he, He's because he's God come in the flesh. Right? He reveals to us not only how to have your sins forgiven, to how to have a right relationship with the Father and not face eternal condemnation. He's actually the one who provided the way. He's the one who provided the way to God through the sacrifice of himself. So again, Jesus is the perfect prophet of God. He offers a better revelation than the Old Testament prophets who are just mere servants of the Most High God. Because Jesus Christ is whom? He is God's son. Right? He's God's son. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He says, A servant may be able to say everything that is right about his Lord and Master. He may know him well and intimately, but he can never represent him in the way that a son can. The son is the manifestation uh, of the Father by being what he is. Thus our Lord himself, while here on earth, represented and manifested the name of God in, in a way that is incomprehensible, uh, uh, incompar- that is incomparable and greater than all of the others because he's the son of God. That's a tremendous statement. Uh, 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 your, your servant may represent you well, but not like your son. He really represents you well because he's one with the Father. Now, the Old Testament prophets foretold his coming. The New Testament uh, writers declare the fact that the son is here. So again, there's this sevenfold description the writer is going to give of the greatness, the superiority of the person of Jesus Christ. Number one, he says Jesus is the heir of everything that belongs to the Father. H-E-I-R. He's the heir of all that belongs to the Father. In whom he appointed heir of all things, he says. I told you it's a title of dignity, a title of dominion. It says that all things fall under the Son's authority. All things belong to him. Second, he says that Jesus is the creator, right, through whom he also made the world. Uh, it's not just the physical world, that's true, but that's not the word there. It's not cosmos, it's ionis. It just means that Jesus Christ is the creator of the ages. Creator of the ages. Jesus is the one who controls all things. He, everything is under his providential control, under his providential direction. He not only created matter, but he created time. He created time, so history is under his control. Nothing's out of control. It's just chaos of men, whether you see chaos all around you. It's the chaos of men. It's not because God's out of control or this world is out of control. It's going exactly the way God is going to ordain it, the way God has ordained it, for his glory, the exaltation of his son. Nothing in this world happens by random chance. Nothing in this world happens by random chance. All things are directed 
to God's perfect end. Number three, the third thing the writer says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The full glory of the Father is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? Just like the Son, Jesus is the source of the radiant, uh, uh, the, He is the, the, uh, uh, the source and the radiator to divine glory. He's not a reflection, but just like the rays are a part of the sun from the sun, the rays come out, right? That's who the sun is. He's part of the, he, the, the sun, the rays are the same, same thing with the Father. Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory because he's, he's God incarnate. Fourth thing the writer says, Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, right? The very same nature, very same character, very same substance because Jesus Christ is none other than God of very God. The fifth thing the writer says is that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. The, the Bible says that Jesus created everything, the world, the universe, everything in it by the power of his word. He spoke it all into, into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. And by that same power of his word, he sustains everything together. He holds it all together. You probably read this somewhere along the lines. Uh, scientists have acknowledged the fact as they explore the universe. They learn more and more, and they've come face to face with the reality that there's something that literally holds all things together. And it's not something, it's someone. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He not only keeps it all together, he carries it all forward upon, uh, all forward on the appointed course providentially because he is the, he is the king. He is the power over providence. He, he is directing all things uh, towards their final appointed outcome. And then number six, Jesus is the superior priest, the ultimate high priest. The writer says when he made purification of sin, he did what? He sat down. He's the perfect high priest. He comes and offers a better sacrifice than any earthly high priest could ever uh, offer. The perfect priest who comes and offers himself. The sinless one. He comes and offers himself as a one-time sacrifice for sin that, again, never needs to be repeated. He, sacri- uh, he, he sacrifices himself and, and he prevent, provides a sacrifice that actually atones for sin, uh, a sacrifice that actually brings reconciliation and forgiveness. We went through that little uh, intro to Leviticus uh, a few weeks back, and, and I told you the Old Testament priests are sacrificing, sacrificing all the time. It never ended. Even on the Day of Atonement, the high priest comes and makes this a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The very next day, what's happening? Sacrifices are made, right? Because sin is never forgiven. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. What man needed was a perfect sacrifice and a perfect priest that could offer a, a final, perfect, pure sacrifice, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood he entered by the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices that can never take, never take away sin. But he having, excuse me, he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God and waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus Christ, <coughs> excuse me, is, is the one, the only one that can atone for our sin. And he atones for our sin through his own shed blood. The, the only way that a man is ever made just before God, the only way that a man can ever enter into God's presence to have his sin forgiven is by faith in the atoning sacrifice, the work of the person of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ. 
And because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, all other means, all other methods that men put forward uh, underlie the blasphemy of the thought that a man can make himself right with God and reject the sacrifice of the person of Jesus Christ. That is blasphemy. Jesus Christ offers one final perfect pure sacrifice. That is himself. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. When he made purification of sins, he sat down. Number seven, the seventh uh, little uh, feature here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's who Jesus Christ is. He's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest. He takes the position at the right hand of God as the perfect king. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the one, the one who rules from the throne of heaven as the very priest who sacrificed himself for our salvation. And his presence there bears everlasting testimony to the reality of our forgiveness of sins. And you don't have to do anything else because Jesus Christ has done it all. Do nothing else except believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So each one of these seven facets that the writer of the book of Hebrews puts forward points out the fact the person of Jesus Christ is full deity. He's full deity. So again, when the original recipients of the letter are faced with the temptation of abandoning Jesus Christ and going back to Judaism, they're they're being reminded by the author that that's a bad idea. That's a terrible mistake. Because Jesus Christ is none other than God come in the flesh. The superior message to mankind. Superior to all other messengers. Superior to all the Old Testament prophets. And now this morning, again, he's superior to all the angels. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, I think this is going to be fascinating. It's going to be uh, a little bit of uh, deep at times, or a lot of material at least. But it's going to be a fascinating section uh, section here as we kind of work through some of the material. Uh, again, the author wants us to understand who Jesus is, that he's the supreme one, superior to everyone and everything. And again, Jesus is the supreme form of revelation, a better priest, a better mediator, because he brings a better covenant. And the covenant that he brings is better because he brings the new covenant. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Now, in part, that's why the author here all of a sudden makes this turn towards angels, from prophets to angels. Why is he talking about angels all of a sudden? Well, it's because the Jewish people venerated angels. They they held them in high regard. In fact, they had an excessively high view of angels. Uh, The the Jews connected angels with all the great events of God in the Old Testament, uh, believing that God gave uh, gave Moses the law through angelic mediation. Therefore, they saw angels playing a very important role in the Old Covenant and obviously a very important role in their relationship to God. And then, just like now, people tend to be fascinated by angels. If you could find a Christian bookstore that actually had books in it, if you were able to make your way through the angel paraphernalia and the potpourri and the candles to find the books in this Christian bookstore you'd find all kinds of books on angels right next to all kinds of jewelry with angels and all kinds of angelic knickknacks. And part of the reason for that is people know intrinsically they need a mediator. They know they need someone to open the door to heaven, so to speak, and to the blessings of the all-powerful God. They need supernatural help. And the people of the first century, just like in our day, they found angels to be appealing because angels were somewhat of an on-demand form of spiritual hope and comfort. 
Now, the problem is most people don't know much about angels. They're not, at least not much which is accurate. And honestly, while that's a problem, I think that also makes them attractive to people's veneration because there's this mystery. So you got your angelic cherub and painting and charm and your potpourri and your candles burning and incense and you're going to, I mean, it's just craziness, but people find angels fascinating. Now, what the author is going to do is he's going to show the, the recipients of the letter and us that you can find much better, greater hope and help in the person of Jesus Christ than you can ever find in angels or any kind of mystical worship of angels. Because it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that it fulfills our need that we might enter into the presence of God. Now, before we get into the text proper, we're going to stop and have a little theology class on angelology. I just thought the background would be helpful for us in the study as we're working through quite a bit of uh, verses on, on this issue of angels. So we're going to have a little uh, a theology class on angelology. Now, now, the truth is, as wonderful as man is, the highest form of God's creation, uh, at least amongst the material world, the truth is there is a being that's a little bit higher than man. They're known as angels. It's interesting, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, when Jesus became a man it says he was jesus was made a little while lower than the angels that means he became a man right uh, angels are especially uh, uh, created spirit beings made by god before he made man in the fact the bible says that angels were watching in the heavens as god created the world now, the bible speaks a great deal about angels uh, actually there's 108 direct uh, references to angels in the old testament 165 in the New Testament, and, and, and angels' uh, primary purpose was to render special worship and service to God. So what do we know about angels? Well, actually quite a bit if we take the time to uh, read through the Bible and, and gather information every time something referring to an angel is laid out. Also, there are some good resources out there, and I give you one for by way of example, that have brought all of this information down into a kind of concise manner. There's a man named Fred Dickinson. Fred Dickinson, he wrote a book called Angels, Elect, and Evil. He's a, um, he used to be at the Moody Bible Institute. And it's a good book. It's very helpful. It's not perfect. There's a couple things in there I wouldn't quite agree with. But overall, it's a very helpful book. Fred Dickinson's Angels, Elect, and Evil. Now, again, we need to kind of quickly look at what the Bible says about angels. And as we do that, before I even get into that part of the angelology class, I just feel the necessity to remind us of the angelic world. J- just uh, stop and realize something obvious. There's a spirit world around us. God ultimately controls the universe. He's the sovereign of the universe. He's in control of all outcomes, all events, all beings, even in the supernatural realm. But sometime I feel that as believers, we forget the reality of the spiritual realm. We, we forget what Paul told uh, uh, the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 verse 10 he says be strong in the Lord and the strength of his mind put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers against powers against world forces of darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places I fear we forget that sometimes and we begin to think our struggle is against the flesh it's against the flesh and the blood. It's against that person or that other person or that political group or this other political group. That if we can just get the right person into office, everything's going to be fine. But that's not true. We, we acknowledge the existence of the, 
a spiritual realm and then somehow we tend to forget very quickly and very easily the whole world lies in the power of who? The evil one. You look at the world and go, man, it's crazy. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We tend to forget 2 Corinthians five or 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a spiritual world out there with spiritual realities all around us. And the devil and his forces have one central objective, that is to destroy God's work. To destroy God's work, to bring bring chaos, confusion, disorder, trouble into God's world and into your home, if you'll let him. Most specifically, the devil and his group are always about attacking God's greatest creation, which is mankind. So I think we need to realize again that the Christian life is a warfare. It is a spiritual battle around us on a grand scale. And again, the only way that we're going to understand the world around us is to acknowledge that fact. The only way that we're going to understand the world in which we live in is to see the position that we're in in this world as a result of the fall, that there's a spiritual battle going on, a cosmic conflict between uh, uh, God and the forces of uh, evil on one hand, the devil and his forces, but nevertheless, a real battle. Now, now make sure you don't think I'm speaking anything about dualism. I'm not talk, we're not talking about Star Wars here, right? Uh, like they're two equal forces. They're not. God is sovereign. Uh, but the truth is, as the, the one who made the heavens and the earth rules over all, the, the truth is there's evil in the world. But God has his purposes for allowing evil in the world. But in the end, he's already said that he's going to punish all evil. It'll be done away with eternally. So again, with the caveat of understanding that God is sovereign over everything, and with an understanding that it's true that the devil does everything he can to try to separate man from God, and everything that he can do to lie to men about man's importance to God, and, and to lie to man about the man's special relationship to God and the fact that God has made man by special creative activity, the God of this world does everything he can to hinder men from worshiping the true and the living God. And he does everything he can to keep men from Christ and from loving him, from knowing him, from living for the glory of God, living for the glory of Christ. Uh, again, the angel, and, uh, the devil and his angels have one central uh, goal, that's to destroy mankind. Now, that's not the purpose of the morning sermon, but I just felt I needed to throw that caveat out there just to remind us of the great spiritual realities around us. So, again, when we're in a spot where we're in like now and everybody's so confused and everybody's asking the same question, why are things so crazy? Why is the world all around us crumbling? Where does all this insanity come from? Why are people so discouraged, so depressed? It's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And apart from truth and understanding true truth and the person of truth, you'll fall into the praise of the devil. You'll fall into the schemes of the devil. And everybody around us who has rejected truth are energized, powered, empowered by Satan and his fallen angels and their own corruptness internally, their own sin. As angels, fallen angels and uh, fallen men are in rebellion against God and the chaos you see, you could add on to that in Romans chapter 1, God taking his restraining hand off also and just letting things go their natural way however 
if you are a believer, then you need to remember that victory has been already what? Won. It's already been won for you in Jesus Christ. And Second Peter 1 verse 3, Peter says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The power of God, the power of Christ has granted to us everything we need in this world of life and godliness. So if you fix your eyes on your issues, you fix on your eyes on the problems in your life or the problems around you, you're going to struggle. But if you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and you walk in the power of his spirit, then you're going to have triumphant victory and triumphant hope. Now, let's do this quick study at angelology, and I say that word with a little bit of hesitation, quick. But here we go. As to the origin of angels. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says God creates everything, right? So that would include angels. Angels are created by God. They're not eternal. Uh, only God alone is eternal. Angels didn't always exist. And, and angels are not formerly men uh, who've died, Right? You don't die and become an angel. And I hate to tell you this, but your cute little baby is not an angel. And you will find that out at some point if you've not already. All right? Angels are angels. Angels are created by God as angels. Each and every angel is a special creation by God. Apparently God created all the angels at once. Perhaps that's why they're at times called the sons of God. And once the angels were created, no more were added to their kind. They don't procreate as humans do. Angel, angelic beings are not eternal. They're, they're, they are uh, immortal, but, but th- that meaning they, they don't, they're not subject to death. Uh, scripture nowhere indicates that they, they die. Nowhere uh, the Scripture indicates that they are made extinct, uh, but they live forever, just like everyone created in the, in the universe. The number that God created at the beginning is the same number that exists now. They don't increase or decrease. Angels, again, are a direct creation of God. We're not told the exact time of their creation, but again, we know that all the sons of God sang with joy at the creation of the earth, as it says in Job uh, 38, verse 7. Satan, who is an angelic creature, appears in Genesis chapter 3, right there at the, the beginning. So originally, created Satan created as Lucifer, the star of the morning, until he rebels against God. So you can deduce that God created angels, perhaps, before he created the physical earth. Most certainly before he created man. So angels are older than men. Again, although they're not eternal. And life and everything in the universe, again, primarily has the, uh, the purpose, uh, again, why angels were created, that they might glorify God, they might glorify Christ and serve them. They were created, it says in uh, Colossians 1.16, by him and for him, speaking of Jesus Christ. So originally the angels were created good and holy because God, when he made the world and pronounced uh, it, uh, all of his creation good, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. It would be inconsistent with God's nature and character to create anything that is wicked or evil. So again, angels, as they were originally created, good and holy, they're surrounded by everything that is good, influenced by everything that is holy. And, and the Holy One, who'd be the person of God himself, they enjoyed God's presence. They enjoyed the heavens and the environment of heavens around the perfect person of God. That what, that's what makes the rebellion of some of them most wicked and most sinful. And from the point of the rebellion, there are two classes, two moral classes of angels. Uh, they are the elect, those who remain loyal to God. You see that phraseology used in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. And then the evil. The evil, those elect and the evil. 
of those who follow Satan in his rebellion against God. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. So again, angel, angels originally, as they were created, had great privilege. They knew God is in a holy relationship. Again, they're his sons by direct creation. He was their creator father. Each bearing the mark of individual creation, there's probably no two angels alike. They knew God. They knew the pleasure of worshiping him. They had the joy of relationship with him, the beauty of holiness in his presence. But then some rebelled. Now, angels have uh, certain limitations, uh, again, because angels are created beings. They, they don't possess uh, omnipresence. That means uh, as, as spirits, they can't be in all places at all time uh, or many places at the same time. Angels have to move from spot to spot, from one location to another location. So angels are localized. Angels have uh, limitations in power. Only God himself is omnipotent, meaning only God has ultimate power. And only God has unlimited power to speak and move to have his will done. But angels have greater power than men. And under God's direction, they're even, they will even control some of the elements of nature. You read that in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, chapter 16. They'll hold back the four winds of the earth so the wind doesn't blow on the earth. Now, one of the angels in the time of the Revelation is going to receive power uh, over the scorching heat of the sun to, to plague men with a great... Uh, heat during the time of the Great Tribulation. And during that great worldwide catastrophe in the Great Tribulation, according to Revelation 8, uh, 9, they're going to accommodate, they, they will, uh, 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 in accordance with God's wrath, destroy a third of the earth's vegetation. Destroy a third of all life in the salt and fresh waters and, and turn it into blood. Now, while they have great power under God's direction, sometimes they are limited in power. Sometimes they are taxed uh, by accomplishing God's duties. And, and as in the struggle with elect or with evil angels in Revelation chapter 12, they stand in need of assistance. If you go back to Daniel chapter 10, you'll see that. On the other hand, they do have, they do uh, possess great power, the power of God that He has given them, and God uses them as powerful instruments in His hand to put down human wickedness and to restrain evil. Think about the two angels that God sent to uh, uh, Sodom where Lot was. Uh, amidst the perverted uh, people of that city, and God sent those angels to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God used angels to, or used an angel, in fact, uh, to defeat the uh, the uh, uh, blasphemous leader of Assyria. Uh, God sent his angel in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, and in one night he slew 185,000 of the men of war. Angels rescued Lot. They released Peter from prison. Uh, They they were there to help the three uh, young Hebrew men in the fiery furnace, Daniel chapter 3. So again, wiser than men, but they're limited in intellect. They have wisdom, great wisdom. They have wisdom inherent and acquired by just watching and listening, but it doesn't compare with God. So they, they need additional revelation. They don't completely understand the marvel of salvation. You read that in First Peter 1, right? Angels long to look. They, they don't quite get it. They, they don't understand the hour of Christ's return, Matthew chapter 24. Now, as created beings, they're accountable to God. They're responsible to God. They're going to give an answer to the Creator. Uh, and, and again, the ones who failed and rebelled against God are going to stand to be judged. So Satan and all his evil hosts are going to be eventually thrown into the like of fire. They're going to be tormented eternally because of their rebellion against God. And again, angels are spirit beings, meaning, again, they don't have flesh and blood, but they do take on certain forms. They have bodies of some fashion, some form. 
perhaps a body that doesn't operate in the principles that we understand and how our bodies work. Uh, Paul, I think, infers that in First uh, Corinthians fifteen forty four. He says there are spiritual bodies and heavenly bodies and natural bodies, right? So perhaps they have a, a body that we, operates in a form we just don't understand because we're limited here to the to the physical. Now, the body of the spirit or the body of the angel is usually not seen or not necessarily visible, but they do have the ability to take on human form when it suits God's purposes. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to warn in chapter 13 that we need to be careful how we treat strangers since we might be entertaining angels unaware or angels without knowing it. The Old Testament tells us that Jacob wrestled with an angel uh, who dislocated his hip, so he must have had some kind of physical form. So now, again, we know that times that angels take on human forms, the form of a man. Uh, Abraham, think about him back in Genesis 18. Uh, he welcomed three men in the plains of Mamre. Uh, he talked with them, he walked with them, he sat down with them, visited with them as men, uh, invited them to eat, and they did, but they weren't men, they were angels. Lot, he's in Sodom. Two angels come there uh, to Sodom, and the physical appearance of these angels was such... With, uh, was such a real, there was such a realism, uh, there was a desire, a wicked desire by the men of that city to come and mistreat these two men sexually, Genesis 19. uh, Generally, they tend to appear as males and often young men. Think about Matthew 28, verse 3, where the angel uh, is there at Christ's resurrection, and he comes and rolls away the stone. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 3, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, his garment was white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So sometimes their appearance strikes terror in the heart of men. Their, their appearance has a force to it. And, and again, these Roman guards, they saw this angel roll back the stone and they lost themselves. They lost their composure. But again, angels are messengers. And again, that's the basic me- uh, meaning of the word angelos in the Greek and then malak in the, in the Hebrew. They're just messengers. And uh, again, that text goes on in Matthew chapter 28. The angel answered and said to the women who are there at the tomb, do not be afraid. Here, here's the message. Do not be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. Uh, he's not here for he's risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was laying and go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. Behold, I've told you. Right? That's the message he was sent to deliver and he delivered it to them. So angels are messengers of God. They're described with majesty and dignity uh, that, that God has given to them. So we should not think lightly of them. We should not. Uh, we need to take serious uh, the reality of, of the spiritual realm around us and understand again that angels are more powerful than men. And again, we're told in Ephesians six to put on the full armor of God that we might stand in our struggle against the fallen angelic beings, against the wiles, the schemes, the lies of the devil. The world believes the lies of the devil. That's why they're in utter chaos, because they have no anchoring or mooring in truth. Right? And they just believe every kind of lie that, that comes down the pike. Yeah, you're a man. Well, you can be a woman if you want. You're a woman. You can be a man if you want. Just all kinds of lies that have nothing to do with reality. <laughs> you're, again, your SUV is not going to destroy the planet. Because the planet belongs to God. The planet exists for God to carry out eternal plan of redemption in time. When he's done with the planet, he will dissolve it. Not your SUV. Not your campfire in the backyard. We need to believe the truth. 
Not what the world says, because the world is under the power of the evil one. All the world does is just keep regurgitating lies. So again, the angels are reality. The spiritual realm is a reality. Angels of high intelligence, and they have emotion. So you have emotion, sure, right? Because when a, when a sinner repents, they do what? They rejoice, right? They rejoice, and, and they can speak uh, the, the, uh, and speak to men in, in language that men understand. Uh, some of our charismatic friends get a little crazy when they start talking about angelic language. Anywhere you see in the Bible, an angel talks, talks to a man. He talks to a man in the language that that man can understand, that person can understand. Right? Paul said, look, uh, uh, even though we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. According to Mark uh, 13, verse 32, and Jude 6, uh, angels have a special abode in the heavens. They dwell in all of the heavens. We know biblically the third heaven is the abode of God, the heaven of God's presence. We know that there's a second heaven, infinite heaven, the, the, uh, the universe with the stars in the sky, or the, uh, the stars and the planets, etc., and so forth. And then the heaven, which is just above the earth, right, where the birds fly and all that kind of stuff, the clouds are. And the Bible says they dwell in all these places. They have access to all these places. They inhabit the entire universe. And they're countless in number. Daniel says in Daniel 7, verse 10, in the vision he has of the Ancient of Days, he says there were thousands upon thousands attending him, myriads upon myriads standing before him. That would be the Most High God. Same thing in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, verse 11. John says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders, and the numbers of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And the King James says the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, or thousands of thousands. You ask how many is that? Answer is... A whole lot. Yeah, a whole lot. I don't know. Revelation chapter 12 says Satan, the great red dragon, because of, uh, uh, causes a rebellion in the angelic host, and a third of the stars of heaven were thrown down to the earth. A third of the angels uh, rebelled against God and are what we would term as uh, demons or evil angels. Angels are highly organized. They're divided into ranks, into complex organizations. Uh, the various ranks and orders apparently have differing uh, supervisorial responsibilities. There are thrones and dominions and principalities and powers and authorities. There are special classes of angels, cherubim, seraphim, and then living creatures. As to the cherubim, their main function uh, seems to be the proclaimers and protectors of God's glorious presence, uh, his, his sovereignty, his holiness. As to the seraphim, their main fan- function seems to be the praise and the proclamation of the perfect holiness of God. You see them in, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, where they're hovering above God and above the throne. And in this antiphonal uh, chorus, crying out, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. As to the living creatures, they're the ones that are referenced to having faces like a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. They have a multitude of wings and many eyes. Just kind of, from our perspective, somewhat bizarre-looking creatures. You, you see them in the book of Ezekiel. You see them in the book of the Revelation. And they're worshiping God. They're directing the judgment that God lays out during the time of the tribulation. In the Bible, there are, some would say two. I'll, I'm going to give three, but there are only three uh, some of the Jewish writers would say more, but biblically there's only uh, three that are given names. You have Michael. Michael's designated the archangel. He was given uh, uh, the authority to stand for God's people, uh, Israel, to oppose God's enemies. Then you have Gabriel. He's the mighty one of God. 
Gabriel is the one who comes to Zacharias and tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have the miraculous supernatural birth of a son in their old age, that he's going to be the father of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, verse 19 and following. Then Gabriel again appears in Luke chapter 1 just a few verses later to Mary as sent from God to inform her of the supernatural birth that is coming for her uh, into her life. Luke 1, verse 30. Do not be afraid, Gabriel says. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High God, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, the last angel that is named in the Bible is Lucifer. Now, Lucifer is the rendering in the King James Version, and it actually means morning star. So unless you have the King James, it's probably going to say morning star, or day star, star of the morning, something along those lines. But Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, in the King James, it renders it like this. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you're cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we don't have time to go into it, but Ezekiel 28 says this person, Lucifer, was the anointed cherub that covers so he's part of the one, he's one of the uh, covering cherubs. Again, he was, had the, the access to the most sacred of places. He, had, he, he was one of the most sacred of angels who covered or protected uh, God's holiness. It's cherubs that are over the top of the, <coughs> the Ark of the Covenant at the, at the mercy seat. So apparently Lucifer had one of these positions of high angelic authority uh, and uh, uh, guarding and protecting the glory and the holiness of God, set apart for that service, consecrated, chosen for that position, by God himself. Uh, God put him there. I, I placed you there. But then in his rebellion, he goes from Lucifer, star of the morning, he becomes Satan. And the title Satan means adversary or opposer. Satan is the self-proposed rival to God. His purpose is to set up a counterfeit kingdom, a rival kingdom. He, he opposes not only God, but he opposes God's people. He's also known as the devil or diabolos, slanderer, the one who trips up. It's a picture of a person who maliciously utters false reports. He's trying to injure the reputation of another. So the devil seeks to defame God, to defame Christ, and wants to even defame the believer. He's also, interesting, the evil one, Holoponeros. It's limiting the evil to a specific person. So what the Bible is saying is evil is not just some concept. Again, we're not George Lucas and the Star Wars thing, but evil is personified in a person. One who's so intrinsically wicked, he's not content with corrupting himself. He wants to corrupt others around him. Uh, again, First John five nineteen: the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Abaddon or Apollyon, uh, he's the tempter, which just means destroyer. He destroys everything, physical and spiritual. Uh, he's the tempter. He's the one who tries men's uh, in, in mortal combat, tries to entice them into evil. Uh, and it's a the temp, tempter. It's a present participle, meaning that that's his continuous characterization that's his continuing activity he's known as the prince of the world the prince of the power of the air the god of this age again the ruler of this world system everything in this world system is promoted and energized by him all of its philosophies all of its practices are anti-god anti-christ he's the old serpent he's the great dragon the one who brings uh, destruction everywhere Uh, the great red dragon again who's waging war against christ and christ's people as to his character you remember in john chapter 8 He's a liar, doesn't stand to the truth. There's no truth in him. Uh, he, he speaks lies from his own nature because that's who he is. He's the father of lies. He promotes lies with some semblance of truth for the sake of his lying. He's a liar. He's a murderer. Uh, he's a murderer from the beginning. He brings only death, and he comes only to kill, 
uh, steal and to destroy. He's a deceiver. Again, it's a present participle. That just means this is his continuous activity. This is his continuous action. The, probably the greatest deception of the devil is what? Hiding his own existence. <laughs> you, you don't believe in the devil now, do you? Oh, no, there would be nothing in this country and this society around the world make me think that the devil is actually real. This is just normal activity. Right? He, 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 hides his own, he hides his own existence. And he actively promotes false philosophies. There's no God. Everything came out of time by chance over a long period of time. Everything evolved. We want no God because if we have a God, then we're accountable to him. You are. Right? He, he, he deceives everyone and everything. He, he brings all kinds of moral perversion. He's the one who deceived Eve back in the garden when he came in and asked the question that is the question that echoes down into our very day. Indeed, has God said? Right? The first question all recorded in history is against God and his word. And it's the same question that men are asking today. There's no God. He doesn't speak. Right? It's all the deception of the devil himself. So he goes from Lucifer, star of the morning, son of the dawn, perfect in glory and beauty and wisdom, the greatest of created being, the guardian of God's glory and holiness, perfect one set aside, chosen, set aside, chosen by God uh, to, to carry out this role in, in perfection and beautiness and holiness, to Satan, the opposer of everything, opposer of everything that is high and holy and right. He's the slanderer, the destroyer, the tempter, uh, the accuser, the liar, the murderer, the deceiver, absolutely wicked, absolutely corrupt in his own nature. He seeks to kill destroy, corrupt everything of God and God's people, and the whole world lies in the power of what? Or whom? The evil one. So we would just do well to recognize that reality around us. When we're confused, why is the world gone crazy? Well, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Evil, evil angels actively involved. Now, again, angels, however, I mean, I didn't say it at the time. He took a third of the angels with him, right? Revelation chapter 12, which means what? They're outnumbered, right? Two to one, right? God's in control, right? Everybody's outnumbered. God's in charge. But again, angels are God's ministering spirits, spectators at the, at, the, at the work of redemption, the work of creation, the work of judgment. Angels came and ministered to Christ at the crucifixion, at his humiliation. They were there at the conclusion of his temptation in the wilderness. They came to minister to him. They minister, angels minister to God's people. They, they take care of the church. They watch over the church. They, they assist God in answering prayer. They deliver men from danger. They encourage, they give protection. They minister also to unbelievers at times, announcing judgment on them. Now, I know that's a tremendous amount of material, uh, and we did not even come close to saying everything we can say about angels, but that's enough to give you a background of angelology that I think you just need to have at least a biblical understanding of angelology. Because what's going on in the background here with the writer is, I just gave you the biblical understanding, but at the time of the writing, because of the Jewish Talmudic writings, the popular rabbinical traditions and interpretations, the people in the time here began to embellish basic Old Testament teachings about angels. So the writer is not just writing against the backdrop of true biblical teaching of angels, he's also addressing common Jewish misconceptions of angels in the time which he's writing this book. So again, the, the Jewish people believed angels were very important. Very important to the Old Covenant. Uh, again, the highest being uh, next to God himself. They believed that God was surrounded by angels and that angels were the instruments to bring God's word to men. Angels were the ones who were always working out God's will throughout the universe. 
Uh, they, they believed that uh, angels were creatures that were uh, made of fiery substances, blazing light, who didn't eat, drink, or procreate. Uh, they, they believed, the Jews believed that the angels of God were his senate in, in the sense that they were his counsel, that God didn't do anything without the counsel of, uh, of the angelic host. Uh, back in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, a Jewish version, Jewish rendering of this would be when God says, let us make man. Uh, the Jews believed that God was speaking to angels, that they were the helper there in his creative activity, uh, in that word us. Uh, some Jew- Jews believed that a group of angels objected to the creation of man, therefore they were immediately annihilated. Uh, others believed that, uh, that the angels objected to the giving of the law of Moses, so they attacked Moses on the way up to Mount Sinai. Uh, the Jews believe that uh, angels control the movement of the stars, the calendar, days, months, and years. There were, there were angels uh, over every one of these uh, issues. Uh, they, they believe that uh, a mighty angel took care of the seas. Another angel came along and, and superintended over frost and dew and rain and snow and hail and thunder and lightning. Uh, there were still others, uh, Jews, who believed that angels were the wardens of hell, uh, the torturers of the damned. They, they believed that there was even a recording angel who wrote down everything that man spoke. They, they thought there was an angel of death. Uh, they felt there was a guardian angel uh, for every child and, and every nation. Some rabbis said that na- angels were so numerous that there was as many angels as there are as blades of grass. Now, one more thing that makes the, the, this whole issue of angels in the context of the book I- important is that the Jews knew that the Old Covenant was brought to them by God with the assistance of angels. And, and this, above anything else, exalted angels in the mind of the Jewish people. They believed that the angels were mediators of the covenant with God. The angels actually administered the covenant uh, between them and God at all times. So they have an extremely lofty view of angels. Now, you see that attitude in the basic uh, belief indicated in Stephen in his sermon when he's being stoned. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart uh, and ear are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Uh, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously uh, announced the coming of the righteous one, uh, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. Here it is, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You see the same thing in Galatians chapter 3.19. Paul says, why then the law was added because of transgression, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come, whom the promise had been made. Moses, they they get this out of Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, because Moses, in his final blessing to the nation of Israel, kind of recounting his life and what God had done, he's speaking to the uh, the nation of Israel as God gave the Ten Commandments, or when God gave the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 again. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came in the midst of 10,000 holy ones at the right hand of of who was flashing a lightning, lightning uh, for them. So angels everywhere. So they're really big. Uh, again, so he said, look, God gave the Ten Commandments. He, he brought angels. And, and so to the Jews, angels are highly important. So much so that some people in the nation of Israel are starting to worship angels. Right, that, that develops not proper here at the moment, but that's going to develop into a, a, a second century uh, heresy uh, known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism 
among, any, among a number of other things, involve the worship of angels. And the central idea behind Gnosticism is the Gnostics believed the key to saving truth was hidden knowledge beyond what the, the Bible revealed. So the Bible's not enough, you just need a little bit more. But part of that was uh, 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 the worship of angels. And Gnostics actually reduced Jesus to an angel. That's why in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, there's a warning against worshiping angels. Because the, 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 the Colossians were being um, influenced by these pre-Gnostic ideas. Colossians 2, verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. Now, I know you've got the Bible stuff going on, but we've got this, you know, we do these things and we've got angelic worship, right? So he's saying, look, don't, don't get trapped into that nonsense. Don't get trapped into worshiping angels. So again, the Jewish people had a very high, exalted view of angels. And some of them, again, have been falling into the pattern of worshiping angels. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is presenting to them the fact that Jesus is the mediator. Angels may have brought the old covenant, but Jesus is a mediator of the better covenant. Jesus is better than angels. Again, that's the whole purpose of this discourse in the angels, starting in verse 4, going all the way to verse 14. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus brings a better covenant. He brings a new covenant. The covenant that Jesus brings is ratified by his blood, by one-time sacrifice, by believing in him, repenting, believing in him, accepting what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, receiving him as your savior. The new covenant is much better than the old covenant. Old covenant system could never take away sin. The new covenant mediated by a better sacrifice, that would be God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, not angelic beings, Christ. Christ is better than angels. So again, what the writer is going to do here is he's going to prove the supremacy of Jesus Christ over angels, and he's going to use seven Old Testament passages to verify that truth. And the, Hebrew, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to use the Hebrew text or the Old Covenant to, to prove that Jesus is better. And when we start to work our way through these the seven different passages, if you were to go back and look at the reference that I'll give you along the way, you might see there's a little bit difference of, uh, of uh, variation in terms uh, because what the writer is doing is he's not using the Hebrew version of the text. He's using the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So there's nothing different in, ma- in major meaning. Just some of the phrases are a little bit different. The truth is the truth. So the issue here is the translation. So there's a little difference, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that when we work through our way through the text. Now, again, the genius of the writer here is he's going to use their own text to prove to them from their own scripture, their own Bible, as it were. It's not technically, but as it were, right? Their own Bible. He, he's going to wisely show them this Jewish, this Jewish group of believers, again, from their own Bible, the Old Testament text, that Christ is better. So it's not I'm bringing in new information. No, I'm going to show you from your own word. You just weren't reading it the right way. That Christ is better. He's better than the angels. He's superior to the angels. In fact, he's much better than the angels. So here's the proposition and we won't go too much further, but here's the proposition. Hebrews 1, verse 4. So the, the, the sermon, if you want, is 5 through 14. But here's the proposition. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And again, I'll be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. So again, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is doing, he's going to prove the superiority of Jesus Christ, He's going to ask the readers from their own Old Testament text, which angel did ever did God ever call a son or the son, his son? Answer is none. 
None of them. So again, as highly as the Jewish readers thought of angels, he's saying, look, you should really think higher of the person of Jesus Christ. Because he has a greater title. Angels are what? Messengers. Jesus Christ is son. Jesus Christ has a better title. Jesus Christ is God's son. He has a better name than the angels, a better title. And it's interesting, if we go through this, we'll be very careful. He is the son of God, singular. Not sons, as angels are sometimes referred to in the Old Testament, plural. But Jesus is the one. The one, the only, the begotten, the only begotten son of God, spirit angel. In fact, in verse 6, God commands angels to worship him. Again, verse 6, and he says that when he again brings the firstborn of the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So if Jesus has a greater title, again, this has come from the Old Testament. So again, if Jesus has a greater title than angels, and he does. And God commands angels to worship him, and he does. That means that Jesus is the superior one. The object of all men's affection, superior to angels, superior to all. That, that's where we're headed. But sadly, we're out of time. So Lord willing, that's where we're going to pick it up from. I know I gave you a ton of information, but I just thought you needed that background so you understand the context why angels are such a big deal here in this book. And again, the wisdom, the genius of the writer to take the Old Testament text and prove to them from their own quote-unquote Bible that Jesus is superior. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for our time in your word this morning and thankful for the reality of the superiority of your Son, our Savior, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. And help us see that reality and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and him alone. What wonderful, tremendous truth uh, that you have left for us to understand and to guide our lives by. Help us to fall deeper and deeper in love with him. Help us to know him better. Help us to study your word more and to listen to the things that you have told us uh, concerning your son, our Savior. And then to rest in the reality that he's the sovereign over the entire universe. That you have exalted him and we just need to keep our focus on Christ. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we praise you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.